Welcome to another edition of The Education Game. I'm Matt, along here with my co-host, Dr. Scott Van Beck. Scott, great to have you here again. Hey, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm great, man. Tell us about the interview that we've got today. Well, I, I think we've got something really special. Mm-hmm. I think I say that every week, <laughs> but... It's true. This, That's why. This week, it's special. Yeah. So we've got a woman named Susan Zellman mm-hmm. on the show today. And uh, I met Susan uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, I found out that Susan, in a previous life, uh, was the state superintendent of public education in Ohio. Huge, huge, huge role. Huge job. Yeah, really big. Uh, Ohio is a... <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's as diverse of a state as as Texas might no. be, but it's pretty diverse. Yeah, and you know, you think about cities like Cleveland, yep. Cincinnati, then you got rural areas. Yep, got you know uh, areas up in the in the northwest part compared to Appalachia, down in the southeast part of uh, of Ohio, and uh, so. Uh, we're going to have a conversation with Susan yeah. and um, Susan's got a, uh, a book uh, that she's writing right now, uh, the buying and selling of American children. Very provocative title. Love that title. And as we'll get into it, there's some real truth to that. So looking forward to that conversation, but before we get to that, Scott, we've got our plays of the week. Yeah. Right? Where we Looking talk forward through, to those. Yeah, where yeah. we talk through issues that parents really need to hear about uh, as they're planning their kids' education and, and learning. All right, so uh, we're going to do two today. One is going to be kind of at the high end, the uh, the university level, and the other is going to be for families that are really kind of struggling because we want to make sure we have uh, have some understanding and discussion for like all spectrum, all types of families that we're dealing with. So the play of the week came from an article inside Higher Education. Uh, that profiled university after university after university after university that had tons of kids testing positive for COVID. Uh, Skidmore College, uh, they you know they suspended 46 students for violating rules. Assumption University locked down its campus uh, for an entire week. Uh, uh, Duchesne University uh, had re- repeated and egregious violations. Uh, uh, that suspended all uh, Greek activity on campus. I mean, I go on and on. Uh, in a Chicago school, two-thirds of men's and women's soccer team was diagnosed with COVID. So this is like a constant drumbeat. At er- almost every university, you're seeing these spikes. What response to that, Scott? Well, so I think uh, public education and COVID has the same relationship as the American economy and COVID. Mm. And uh, the question is, which one do you want to work on? <laughs> Great so uh, Republicans uh, kind of want to work on the economy. Mm. And I would imagine they want to work on public education and college football and you know stuff like that. Democrats sure. on the other side are basically saying, you know, Joe Biden is saying, listen, we can't fix public education nor the economy. And I should say fix 
public education by bringing kids back to school and keeping them in school right. without getting the virus under control. That's right. That's so right. I, like, man, I, like, I might be wrong about this, but I think we're going to see more and more, you know, instances of what you just described, not only at the higher ed level, but I can tell you right now here in Montpelier, uh, beautiful Montpelier, Vermont, uh, our elementary school shut down. Yeah, uh, because they had COVID cases. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it freaked parents out. Um, all of a sudden, they thought, "Oh, here it's happening again." Well, yeah, it's going to happen again. Right. That's exactly right. Well, and I tell you what, I, I could go on and on about the universities that are dealing with this, but uh, let's let's move on to the other side of this play of the week. So, um, ProPublica had an article that uh, actually it was in the New Yorker that talked about, you sent this to me, Scott, it talked about a family, profiled a family that was really, really struggling financially, emotionally, socially, uh, you know, a child who was all, very much kind of left to his own devices to learn and was kind of, you know, stalling out. Uh, what do you say to that, Scott? Well, first, I got to say, I've got unbelievable respect for you, Matt, that you're able to get through a New Yorker article because they are about as long as you can possibly imagine. Uh, yeah. Really good articles, by the way. Yeah. It takes a while to get through it. Um, I think I think the young man's name was Shamar. Yeah. In the article, Here, here's here's the deal. I think uh, we need, and Susan Zellman's going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be careful of the. Uh, What's that? What's that saying about uh, soft bigotry? The soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I hear this a lot. You know, oh, you know, we have to get poor kids back into school because they can't form learning pods, and they can, you know, their parents are too busy. You know, I, like I'm a historian by training, so I think back to the early 20th century. You know, and uh, immigrant families, they got their kids educated. Oh, and by the way, their kids were working in factories. And a bunch of those kids learned uh, and they learned at high levels. So I'm I'm not buying this that uh, poor families can't figure out learning at home or learning outside of school. I'm just not buying it. Well, Scott, you know that a lot of my work has been with these very types of families, and there are tons of strategies that they can absolutely uh, uh, initiate. And so, yeah, to your point, we have to. I, I believe that we need to think this through in a different way. We need to start saying that, not asking the question, uh, why can't they, but what will it take for them to, right? What can we do to help make sure they understand what's at stake? Because the gravity is such that if they're not doing it, it's not going to get done. And guess what? It wasn't getting done before COVID. Yeah, right? yeah. Enough, enough deficit thinking. Yeah. Right, man. So give me, give, Scott, give me a 15-second overview of the interview with Susan, and then we'll uh, cut to that uh, interview. Yeah, so I, I, I think the listeners are really going to like this interview. What really uh, impressed me was, you know, for being a state superintendent, Susan Zellman flat understands parents that's right and uh that's a rare bird yep well we'll get into it in a moment uh this is matt and dr scott with the education game
Okay, we're back. Uh, this is uh, the education game. Uh, I'm Dr. Scott, uh, along with uh, Matt Barnes, and uh, we are so excited today. Uh, we have Susan Zellman with us. Susan, uh, from 1998 to 2008, was the state superintendent for public education in the state of Ohio. And uh, Susan, welcome to the uh, education game. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to having a lively discussion with you. We're, we're so excited to have you uh, with us. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Matt and my work uh, really focuses and circles around parents. And, um, you know, in the public education world, and I was in it 35 years, one of the things that I noticed was uh, it was really hard at least in Texas, for state leadership, state education leadership, to get a really good vibe uh, around what parents thought of public schools, not just in districts, but like across the state. And like Ohio is a very big state, it's very populated, much like Texas. So I guess the, the, the first question is, are there any stories, any memories uh, of some outstanding like parent engagement work that just comes to the front of your mind when you were state superintendent in Ohio? Yes, um, it really does. And I'll tell you, one of the first things I did um, in 1999 um, was to put in our Department of Education a parent unit and a parent coordinator who was absolutely terrific. We were in the process of, of sort of developing policies around what we called standard-based reform. In essence, it meant aligning what you expect with kids, how you teach them, and how you assess them. And I knew that we would never be successful if we did not engage parents in the state around that process. So one of the first things we did um, is that we put together from this parent's office a marketing campaign, and we sent out um, letters, to, first to our, of course, our superintendents, keeping our superintendents, our principals, and our teachers informed about all of our policy initiatives. But we also had special outreach to parents. So we gave facsimiles uh, to superintendents and school principals about the changes that we were making in um, education with the hopeful that they would put it in their newsletters and distribute these uh, letters through uh, to parents through their kids. You know, at that time, we didn't have a very strong internet. In addition, uh, one of the things that we did was we, I set up a parent advisory council and the PTA helped me with this, the, the state PTA. And we had parent representatives from, oh, I think we divided the state up into about 10 different regions. And I purposely wanted that to be a diverse group of parents, not only rich suburban parents, but parents from the inner cities, parents from the rural areas and so forth. Uh, we actually also marketed to a lot of local radio stations about our parent education as a parent education strategy 
uh, to talk about um, uh, the new standards for kids, the new curriculum frameworks and the new tests. And in fact, we had um, take a test day and we um, tried to have our advisory committee, we were pretty prescriptive about how that would go and have take a test day when we had a new assessment system all over the state. And I remember I invited a lot of the politicians of the Columbus Public Schools and non-for-profits and we did a take a test day at our uh, downtown uh, library to model that uh, for other groups. We also, um, did a lot of uh, modeling for parent and student and teacher nights. And what we found very closely is that if you provided dinner or, or food, parents and their kids would come with the teachers. And, food's, and food's that was key, right? Food, food, was key. Yeah. food was absolutely key. Boy, that, that, that whole uh, explanation just sounds so comprehensive to me. But, but still, I think there is, you know, as comprehensive as you can be at the state level, there's always the worry that you might be missing some of the parents, whether they're urban or rural or, or whatever the case. Why do you think it's so hard for state education leadership to connect uh, I don't want to say down into parents, but let's let's just say connect with parents. Well, it's not only hard for uh, the state to do that, but it's really hard for superintendents, principals, and teachers. And all you have to do is to look and see what is being taught in our colleges and universities in super um, superintendent certificate uh, certification programs, principal programs, or teacher. Uh, programs, and you'll see the whole parents and community engagement um, either absent or just paid, I would say, lip service to, and really um, not enough emphasis um, on it. So I think that's one thing. The second thing, I think, uh, which I learned very easily as a parent, was that school, I mean, I mean, I taught the sociology, I was a college professor before I uh, became a state superintendent. I don't have a, um, a traditional route into the state superintendency, but I'll, I'm gonna use this story because I thought this was so illustrative um, that, um, you know, I, I have three kids and my youngest kid I used in my research when I was an academic and actually he was on the BBC um, <laughs> because he was so interesting mathematically um, in some of our research um, that uh, the BBC came into our basement and tapped him. So I knew he was good in math. Well, it, it was the first day of school and there was uh, an assistant principal collecting um, certificates that their kids had the health examination. And my husband was taking him to school and forgot the certificate. So the principal lined up everybody uh, for uh, who didn't have a certificate and called, made the kids feel embarrassed. About an hour later, they took a math placement test and my son didn't come out uh, on the highest level and he was put into a, a, a group of kids uh, and a curriculum that he didn't find challenging. Are you, are, you the are you the state superintendent at this time? 
No, I wasn't that. I wasn't state superintendent, but I was an associate commissioner of education for the state of Massachusetts at the time. Okay. And I said to him, I think there was a mistake. And I think he was nervous. I talked to him about it. He said, I can't do anything about it. You have to go to the chairman of the math department at the high school. He controls everything. So I went to the chairman and he said to me, well, you don't understand. I said, I don't understand why you even have these levels. Well, all kids should be getting this high powered math curriculum, not only my kid. Um, I said, and in fact, I, you know, what my research was in children's and teachers mathematical thinking. And I know my son is capable of doing more than this curriculum. He said to me such incredible things. He, uh, he said to me first, well, you're the associate commissioner, so I'll move your kid. I said, hey, they're all my children, not just my kid. You know, if I were sitting in your shoes, I would drop this low level curriculum and I give all these kids this richer, more conceptual, exciting curriculum. So this, and he this said, yeah, so this, this is interesting this to me. Well, it gets to your point. And my point yeah. I really want to make is that schools are designed around the needs of adults, not necessarily the kids. So he said to me, look, lady, if all my kids come to the high school knowing algebra in the eighth grade, I'll have nobody in my math department capable of teaching uh, pre-calculus or calculus. I only have one person doing that. And I found that excuse incredibly um, enlightening. Yeah, you know what, what's interesting to me, Susan, about that story is, so here you are uh, an associate commissioner at the state level, and you probably are more in tune uh, with the genuine concerns of just average parents uh, than like some of the people who are working inside the schools, right? And it was probably because you were a parent at that time, you know, and you still are a parent and, and a grandparent, right? Yes. But, right. Exactly. but there, there, there's a dis, disconnect oftentimes that, you know, either it's, it's division of labor or compliance that somehow public school leadership sort of gets in, into this frame of mind that they can't customize, they can't personalize, or somehow they're going to get into trouble, right? Um, that, that's part of it, I, I think. Um, I think people who come into our profession can be very risk averse and conservative. Um, and I think that's part of it. Uh, part of it is their own uh, hidden biases uh, particularly, you know, in the sciences and in mathematics, uh, they think, oh, well, if you're good in math or if you're good in science, you have to be smart, you know, and they have these um, hidden biases and they don't think, quite frankly, that there are high expectations for all kids. And I think that's also one of one of the problems uh, with the, in, in thinking about changing our school culture and our system. I mean, uh, it's that a wonderful expression, which I used to love, the soft bigotry of low expectations, which I think came out of Texas. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. 
thanks for that. Uh, thanks for reminding me that uh, that that uh, I think that was the Boston College uh, study, right? Right. Um, that uh, looked at Texas. Well, so uh, we're we're right up uh, on a break here, Susan. But uh, if you can stick around, uh, I I not only have a few more questions, uh, but you know your story sounds to me like you understood the art of negotiation, and I'd like to pick up with that uh, on the other side of of the break. Perfect. So this is uh, Matt. I'm Dr. Scott. Uh, our guest is Susan Zellman, and uh, this is the education game. I'm Dr. Scott. He's Matt. This is the Education Game, and uh, our guest today is uh, Susan Zellman. Susan uh, was the uh, state superintendent for public education in the state of Ohio uh, from 1998 to 2008. She uh, basically came to that uh, position through a non-traditional uh, route, uh, and I think that that is what makes uh, an interview and a conversation with her, uh, so, so interesting. Um, Susan, before the break, and, and let me say, I, you know, uh, when we started talking about uh, your, your, uh, your quote coming out of Texas, uh, I thought that was uh, uh, through the research of a guy named Walt Haney. Uh, I don't know whether you know Oh, Walt, I know Walt. Right? But, I do uh, know Walt. Walt, right. Walt uh, talked about Texas through the Texas miracle, but uh, you're, right. you're talking about a quote that uh, uh, George W. Bush uh, uh, used, right? Um, in terms exactly. of the low expectations of, uh, you know, bigoted people. Um, yeah. So low before, expectations, right, of our- Yeah, to, uh, say the quote one more time because I, I, I um, messed it up. The soft- I mean, I think educators um, uh, sometimes have these um, um, hidden biases. And it was yeah. the soft bigotry of low expectations. There you go. There you go. All right. So let's, let's get into this uh, word negotiation, because the story you told before the break, uh, you were the assistant commissioner. You came in, sort of negotiated with, with the school. Uh, and made the point, I'm not only negotiating for my kid, I'm really negotiating for all kids. So what is it about negotiation that folks like you and I kind of know how to do it? Uh, but there are a lot of parents that are intimidated by negotiating uh, with schools. Why do you think that is? And what can we do to make parents feel more empowered to go in and negotiate with their schools. Well, I, I as I, um, um, I, I think a lot about that, and in fact, I think what's needed out there uh, is a, um, a, a movement of, of uh, citizens and parents uh, to create the political will uh, to improve and change the system. So I'm actually writing a book. Um, uh, called The Buying and Selling of American School Children. 
And it's really for the general public and for parents to get an understanding of how schools and districts and the state and federal government work. But more importantly, what their role is in asking important questions uh, to educators and policymakers um, to um, address important issues. So I think a good negotiator is one who knows their stuff, who understands how the system works and um, is persistent and determined and creative um, and uh, also has very good listening skills and empathy so that they could put um, their self in the other person's place and understand each other's perspective and point of view. So you just kind of laid out, uh, I don't know, four or five chapters uh, to your book, <laughs> right? Knowledge, right. perseverance, determination, creativity, listening, right? Right, right. right. and what, what actually I do, in, I'm thinking of doing in this book is you know taking different sort of segments of the system and giving uh, the general public um, um, an overview of what is and what could be and uh, the types of questions that they can ask uh, to do it. So for example, um, you know, like I, I'm in the process of actually, because COVID has changed so much, I'm in the process of rewriting a chapter on curriculum and instruction and letting them know what the federal role is, what the state role is very briefly, and then giving them a sense about what new emerging technologies could do to personalize and customize um, instruction. Um, and also what should be the parent's role in the age of COVID? I mean, a lot of instruction right now is going on at home. Uh, and, so, and, so, so right. you want to give us a, uh, a preview of what, what, what your answer is? So I'm going to ask you that question. So what should the role of parents be during COVID? Well, parents should definitely be there to support their kids. And that's really hard because, I mean, uh, uh, upper middle class parents are working from home now. They're stressed out because their kids are online as well. And they, lots of them are, have technology from school or from the home. There are a lot of poor kids that have never used this technology or parents who don't know how to use this technology. And parents may not even be home because their older children are doing the daycare so that they could go out and do some essential um, jobs that they need for income that they have to bring in. So I think from a policy point of view, um, uh, if I were still state superintendent, I would begin to take my little unit, which, which, which after I left was um, uh, not <laughs> went away but now the department I heard has brought back my wonderful parent coordinator. So I was really excited about that. But I think they should focus more on parent education and where parents can get, get resources to help their kids. Amen that, to that. Amen to that, that. And that teachers need to learn how to 
Uh, I mean, the teachers are in this, some sense, some of the teachers are in the same position. So you could be a teacher, but you have three kids at home who are also trying to learn online. And yeah. a lot of the stuff online is totally boring. I mean, I have seven grandkids. One, uh, Andy, who's really very smart and kind of um, very, uh, very quick witted. He said to me the other day, Grandma, you would never believe this but I want to go back to school again. I can't stand this. This is so boring. <laughs> and he was a kid who never liked to go to school. But I yeah, mean, so so it, it's it is boring, right? That uh, somehow, you know, school thinks that if they can send uh, whatever they're doing, you know, inside of the, that brick and mortar to the house and somehow it's going to be more engaging. It's crazy. Hey, it, Susan, it so you and I, uh, we just have a couple minutes left. You and I read uh, a New York Times uh, op-ed by Tom Friedman, and uh, we had a pretty good conversation about it. I want to read you a quote from Friedman uh, sure. and just kind of see what's your reaction. This is what uh, Friedman wrote uh, this week. The most critical role for K-12 educators, therefore, will be to equip young people with the curiosity and passion to be lifelong learners who feel ownership over their education. Obviously, everyone still needs strong fundamentals in reading and writing and math, but in a world where you will change jobs and professions several times, the self-motivation to be a lifelong learner will be paramount. Any reactions to that? Oh, I think I, I couldn't agree with Tom Friedman more. Um, the question is, which I don't think Tom really uh, talked about in his piece, is how are we going to get there? And that the reality is that the educational system has been around for a long, long time. And there are a lot of vested interests. So that's why I feel so passionate about my book. Um, we have to create the political will to change the system. There are lots of ways which, uh, you know, people say COVID um, is going to change everything. Higher education will not be the same. K-12 will not be the same. Well, it could be the same unless we are very uh, strategic and systematic about how we want to create that change and also have a clearer vision of how we would create these lifelong learners, kids who would be um, able to deal with a future which we can't even predict and be agile and flexible and have not only the academic, uh, but the psychological predispositions um, to uh, be um, flexible and uh, can go with the change and be self-motivated to learn so that it could be successful. Yeah. So everyone kind of understands why I like to hang around Susan Selman, because Susan is able to explain what is on my mind better than me and better than most people. Uh, Susan, <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much for uh, uh, coming on the show today. We've been talking with Susan Zellman. Uh, she uh, was state superintendent in Ohio from uh, 1998 to 2008. And uh, we're going to have to have you back, Susan. It's been, uh, the, the time's just flown by. Uh, he's Matt. 
I'm Dr. Scott, and this is The Education Game. The Education Game. This is Matt and Dr. Scott, and we just finished a great conversation with Dr. Susan Zellman. Scott, thank you so much for getting her connected with the show and, and leading that interview. Um, you, you mentioned before we started how she really understands parents, um, and you talked a little bit about that, didn't you, in the, uh, in the interview? Not only does she have uh, unbelievable experience you know, Susan was the type of leader. I, I didn't know Susan when she was a state superintendent, mm-hmm. uh, but she impresses me as someone that brought a parent and then a grandparent's perspective mm-hmm. into the state superintendent yeah. Uh, office. Yeah. And I mean, the listeners heard Ohio didn't have much going on uh, around parent engagement at the state level. Uh, before Susan came in uh, in the uh, in the late '90s, yeah. and uh, kind of turned that around, and and uh, sounds like kind of lit a fire. Yeah, jump started some things. All right, so you know one of the things that uh, she referred to, and we're going to definitely have her back on, Scott. She's uh, you know we're just scratching the surface in terms of what she can, can help parents understand, but um, she referenced this book that she is uh, writing. And it looks like we may be pulled into <laughs> maybe helpers with some of that, but um, help, help families who are listening now, help them understand a little bit, again, kind of previewing a little bit uh, around her book. What does she mean by the buying and selling of American kids or American students? Okay, Matt. So I'm going to share a secret. Uh-oh. I hope everybody's listening. A lot of folks out in the public don't really know this, but here it is. So when I was in Houston ISD as a region superintendent, most parents and most folks outside of a school district think that everyone inside of the school district is working to help children. Mm. I call that the teaching and learning of a school district. And true... There's a lot of time that's spent on that, usually at the lower levels. So you usually see teachers and principals working on the teaching and learning pieces of a a school district. Mm -hmm. But there's another side to a school district. I think this is what Susan is going to talk about in her uh, much anticipated book. Yep. And uh, she calls it the buying and selling of, of children. I always called it the business and politics of a school district. Mm, we've talked about that. These are decisions around contracts, yep. bonds, employment practices, yep. who you hire, yeah. who you don't fire, right? School boards get involved in this too, brother. I was going to say, I mean, I ran for school board last year, as you know, and I, yeah, I, you know. Was, I was shocked how many people came up to me just brazenly asking about contracts and my my willingness to support one or more contracts that they are bringing to the district. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. And, and what you wanted to talk about was teaching reading. and learning. I wanted to talk about right? reading. Because, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, kids in, in Houston, they can't read. That's right. So let's work on that. No, 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 no. no. Nope. There are a lot of adults that would walk into my office and you've heard it 
Uh, and that is, so what are you going to do for me? Right. So I can help you. Yeah, that's right. We can, we can work on teaching and learning, but before we work on teaching and learning, we're going to take care of the business and politics of school. Yep. And, you know, honestly, Matt, you know, when I was a uh, region superintendent, that's really what led me uh, away from the district to the nonprofit world because uh, I was totally committed to the teaching and learning piece. Yeah. I never really got a handle around the business and politics. Yeah. Never did. Well, and, and you know, <laughs> that's one of the unfortunate realities now. I mean, whenever you have institutions, I mean, you know, Houston district is $2 billion. It's a $2 billion budget. So the, the amount of vultures and bottom feeders that are coming around trying to get their adult <laughs> needs met uh, absolutely outcompetes the students needs being met. And, and that's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a really, really dark place in hell for, for family or for, uh, you know, folks who are prioritizing, you know, adults over kids. Yeah. All right. That's, well, that's the business and politics of school. Yeah. Well, I'm looking that's, forward that, to her that's book. That's the buying and selling of, of children. Right. And again, yeah. that's, that's, you know, a lot of parents do not understand that. I saw it close up. You've seen it for years, it sounds like. Um, and there's a sense that uh, uh, if I, I should trust that my school is going to do right by my child. And I have, I have seen that to not be the case. You, Scott, you know some of my history too, which I won't get into on this show another, another time maybe. So, all right, yeah. let's, let's yeah. back up then. Because the other thing that we're talking about is uh, negotiation November. That's the idea that this month of November, we're going to try to teach parents how to negotiate with the school exactly for the reasons you just described. Uh, because if the parent's not negotiating, and that means the parent oftentimes and the child may be getting taken advantage, advantage of. So Scott, tell me um, about a circumstance where a parent did it poorly, negotiated poorly with you, and a circumstance where a parent negotiated well with you in the schools. Oh, that's easy, Matt. Uh, a poor negotiation uh, with me, either at, at, at the principal level or even the superintendent level, is when the parent would come in and start making demands mm -hmm. for their child without the child being in the room. Wow. Um, a good negotiation is when the parent stayed at home or maybe even came to school. But you know who was doing all the talking? Mm. The young learner. Yeah. Yeah. That, like to me, uh, totally, totally different uh, scenarios. Well, let right? me pause you there, Scott, because, yeah. you know, I can imagine uh, a young learner um, not feeling comfortable negotiating with an adult, with someone who has power or authority over them. And so how, how do you make that work? Well, the way you make that work is the way you make lots of stuff work. And that's training and coaching. Yeah. And practice. So yeah, practice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I'm sure uh, when kids would come in to my office and ask me to do things or want things, uh, they had been coached or trained by their yeah. parents. Yeah. Um, 
And like, I, I didn't have any problem with that. Right. So Scott, what now what you're getting at here is uh, the importance of teaching your child the skills they're going to need for adult life. Right. And negotiation is one of those skills. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think sometimes Matt, we see negotiation as a, as a dirty word. Yeah. Um, right. we, we negotiate everything all the right? time. I mean, you time. negotiate with banks, you negotiate oh. with lawyers, sure. you negotiate with doctors, you negotiate with, your boss, with business, with your with colleagues, your boss, yeah. with yeah. subordinates, with your spouse, with your wife, <laughs> with your husband. I lose the negotiation with my wife, by the way. I consistently well, lose that one. I, I need to I'm, practice. I'm on sorry that. for that because I've I'm I'm 100 percent. Oh, yeah, I have no doubt. Wife. I have no doubt. But right. your point is right, Scott, that we negotiate all the time. There's nothing bad about it. But if you're not trained and taught how to do it, it becomes a, a, a long term life problem. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm getting ready to put out a short video on all my social media mm -hmm. about why schools think they work. Uh, and it, and one of the one of the things I talk about is the smugness oh, of schools. Wow. Wow. Uh, because they have uh, market share, right? Yeah, yeah. They have serious market share. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're very smug about what they say and what they do. Well, Scott, let me, now let me jump in and say the smugness, it kind of depends on the families that they're serving because I, and you've, I've talked about this and I've seen it, the schools that are serving parents who have money, who have, more options available to them. The, the school is not nearly as smug. I've, but I've seen parents who are going to lower income schools where a principal will say to them, well, look, you, this, may, this may not be the school for you. Parent, parent making a very logical and reasonable request and the principal saying, take it or leave it, right? That's the smugness that comes from knowing that that parent has very few options in front of them. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. Um... I, uh, you know, the other, the other dynamic is uh, if parents are going to negotiate, it's usually middle-class parents that do the negotiation. That's right. That's, you know, honestly, that's one of the things that I think uh, I did not do a good job uh, of when I was inside the district. And that is training and empowering all families to yeah. negotiate for their children. Awful. Well, that's, that's why, Scott, I say that you are such an anomaly, right? That you have been in the system and you're able to now step back, look at it objectively and say, wait a second, that system is actually failing. It's broken to the point where, you know, you feel like you need to fight to change it. So I appreciate it. I appreciate your stories. Um, yeah, you know, I, Matt, uh, usually at my age, anomaly is synonymous with old. <laughs> and weird. You got that one down. You got the weird, weird. definitely down, Scott. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe different. Weird's a, weird's it's an anomaly. Kind of strong. Uh, no, it's an anomaly. We're just going to say it's different. Scott. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, Scott, we got a few more minutes. Maybe one more minute for the big game. Big That's game. right. All right. Here's the big game. Let's hear it. So uh, uh, getting smart, you know, those folks, they're out yep. in Washington, Tom Vanderark. Yep. Uh, they published an article, uh, the innovative practices that are going to make a difference in learning moving yeah. forward. Yeah. So uh, there are 15 of them. We're only going to talk about five. Okay. Uh, I want you to give either an A to an F on how you think 
schools are handling these innovations. Okay. You ready? Yep. Uh, a positive learner experience. Oh my goodness. Uh, uh, Supposed to be real fast, D, man. Come on. D. D. Credentialing capabilities. For the students? Yeah. For the students or the yeah, teachers. D. Well, D. Yeah, I'll put, I'll read low. You, 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 I'm harsh. Kind of a, uh, no, you're not harsh. You're kind of a <laughs> Make kind it easy. grader. Is it like I'd be F? Yeah. F. All right. Competency based progression. Oh, well, that's clearly an F. Yeah, clearly. Pathetic. Personalized talent development. Yeah, definitely enough. So, see, oh, we got more, Scott? One more? One more. Yeah. One more. But can I say something about personalized talent development? Yeah. You know who we do that well with? Football players and drama students. <laughs> right, right. Athletics and fine arts. You want, to, you, you want personalization around talent development? Yeah. Go to a high school and look at their fine arts program and their athletic program. Their yeah. math department, not so much. Great point. so much, Matt. All right, here's the last one. Yep. Nimble formats. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Is there a grade lower than F on that one? Yeah. It's the same, it's the same institution that's been there for the last, you know, 100 years, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So these well, are the uh, these are the innovative practices, Scott. I'd like to bring this back on the next podcast because I'd like to spend a little more more time on that. But we are out of time for today. So Scott, thanks for being here. I want to personally thank all of you for taking the time to listen today. This is the Education Game again. It's been brought to you by Community Health Choice and Pottery Studios. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website at theeducationgame.com. Thanks for Susan Zellman and her joining us this week. Uh, for myself and Dr. Scott Van Beck, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you here real soon on The Education Game. Take care.